BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Cynic Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on the site at SupChina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as our growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious effort to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. In the late 1960s, the United States, mired in Vietnam, faced with mounting Soviet advances in post-colonial Africa and in the Middle East, watching as the Kremlin put a quick end to the Prague Spring in 68, the U.S. began a deft set of diplomatic moves calculated to balance Soviet power by signaling the possibility of an opening to China, and in doing so, not only making a relaxation of tensions with the Soviet Union possible, the period of detente, which lasted from about 69 to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, in about 1980, but also signaling to Hanoi that it wouldn't enjoy the unconditional backing of Moscow and Beijing and that it should probably hurry up and negotiate with the U.S. Of course, this was made a bit easier by the fact that China and the Soviet Union were then at one another's throats. Uh, They actually had bloody skirmishes on the Amur River in 69, and uh, Mao was convinced that a nuclear strike by Moscow was imminent. There were, of course, other reasons for the opening to China. Kissinger believed that by entangling China in a network of connections to the U.S. scientific, cultural, and commercial relationships, he could defang what was still then a really ardently revolutionary China, uh, much as Prince Metternich had sought in the Congress of Vienna to entangle France and quell its own revolutionary ardor. Uh, But at bottom, the Nixon-Kissinger opening to China resulted from Kissinger's calculations within the framework of the strategic triangle, a kind of game-theoretical heuristic that was once very popular. Today, while the United States and China are increasingly in tension, what about Russia, that third party, that third angle in what was once a triangle? Uh, It's fairly easy, after all, to put together a case that Xi's China and Putin's Russia have moved you know, much closer together in the last decade out of a shared sense of grievance over U.S. hegemony. Uh, you could point to their propensity to vote together in the P5. And uh, though China often abstains when Russia exercises its veto, it's happy to let Putin play the real heavy. Uh, their interests do seem very much aligned. There are joint patrols now, fairly routinely military exercises, uh, increases in arms sales, I believe, a lot of high-profile state visits, a lot of positive mutual media coverage. And as I said, it's it's not too hard to build a case that uh, the two are cozying up. And yet, as our guest today has argued, we would not be right to talk, as we too often do, about China and Russia in one breath. Uh, so 
Ali Wine is a senior analyst with Eurasia Group's global macro practice, focusing on U.S.-China relations and great power competition. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute. Last time we spoke, which was what Ali was like, a little over two years ago, he was still at, it was a while yeah, yeah, at the RAND Corporation where he worked as a policy analyst. Ali, man, it's great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I wish we were having this conversation in person, but it's great to be back. Yeah, in person will happen soon enough, man. In one sense, this is a continuation of that conversation we had, what, two and a half years ago um, in D.C. We were talking then about whether China was, under Xi Jinping, really a revisionist power, uh, because I think at a lot of the heart of the analysis that looks at Russia and China, as we are in, in, in today's episode, um, is that same question, although with, obviously with a comparative spin on it, um, which is the revisionist state are both you know, seeking to fundamentally change what Americans are fond of calling the rules-based international order. Um, there's some people who say so. Others are keen to point out, and I think you are, that there are really Im- important differences in the extent of that challenge, in the ultimate goals, and, and in the strategies that both these states deploy when they do seek to challenge aspects of that order. So let's start with that. I mean, how do you characterize these differences? Well, there are a number of, there are a number of important differences. I think, the, and I would say the one difference is born out of an asymmetry in material capabilities. Mm. So if you look at China, uh, China's economy is obviously substantially larger than Russia's. The economic gap between them continues to grow apace. And China is also, from a psychological perspective, uh, China is increasingly confident. Uh, China is resurgent. You know, Russia, I think psychologically, it is trying to counter the perception, uh, I think a, a still widespread perception that it is, if not terminally declining, that it is structurally stagnating. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, so there's there's a difference in material uh, ma- material capabilities. There's a difference in psychological out, uh, outlooks. And I think that when you put together those data points, what you have is China has more of a stake in the, the post-war order. It has more of a stake than, than Russia does. And I think it's interesting if you look at, just to, to tease out some of the distinctions, look at this report that came out from uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and it was looking at foreign interference in, in the 2020 election. Right. And there were a number of interesting judgments. But I thought that one one judgment or one set of judgments that I found really interesting, it was a contrast between uh, China and Russia. And so this report said that Russia's feeling was that the, that Washington's relationship with Moscow was already sufficiently poor that even if Russia were to be caught deploying election interference efforts, the the marginal rupture, the marginal sort of additional rupture in relations wouldn't be sufficiently uh, concerning from Moscow's perspective to, to you know to warrant holding back. China, on the other hand, was concerned that regardless of which candidate prevailed, whether whether Donald Trump was reelected or whether Joe Biden was elected, China was concerned that if it were to deploy election interference efforts and if it were to be caught deploying those efforts, that um, it didn't want to risk incurring that, that diplomatic blowback. And so I, I give that example to suggest that you know, China, it sees itself as deeply integrated into the post-war order. Now, it's selectively revisionist, but I think it's important to, I think it's important to stipulate that, that word uh, or that, that, that uh, adverb selectively. So I don't think that China... From my vantage point, I don't think that China is interested in a wholesale dissolution of the post-war order uh, outside of the United States. After all, it has been the principal beneficiary of integration into that system. Um, I like Ian Johnston's framework. Mm. Uh, Ian Johnston, he wrote an essay for for international security. I believe he published it in 2019. And Ian Johnston says that we really need to take this 
this concept of a rules-based order, and we need to actually deconstruct it into constituent orders. And in order to look at China's overall approach, there isn't sort of a monolithic disposition. And the idea that, that, that Professor Johnston conveys in this piece is that if you look at China's attitudes toward, and I think that Professor Johnston identifies, I believe, eight constituent right. orders, and he says that China has different attitudes towards them. But, but the point is that China is deeply integrated. It is selectively revisionist. You know, Russia, on the other hand, and then, and then I'll, I'll stop, I think that Russia has long felt that it is, um, not only that it is largely excluded from the post-war order, but that its prospects to sort of national resuscitation don't lie in trying to reintegrate itself into that system. I, I think that Russia seems to have concluded for the time being that it can remind the rest of the world that it is a great power and it can exercise influence more effectively, not by trying to reinsert itself into and and shape over time a new international system, but rather by pursuing extra system efforts. There are different ways of reminding the rest of the world that you that you matter, that you can exercise influence. And so one way of exercising influence is to to assert yourself gradually and to shape norms and arrangements and institutions gradually and to do so in a selective mm-hmm. manner, in a systemic manner. And then if you feel that, you, and this is why I, I mentioned at the outset there's a difference in material capabilities, uh, Russia doesn't have the economic wherewithal to offer something akin to a Belt and Road right, Initiative. Right. Um, it doesn't have the, the overall sort of aggregate economic capacity to offer the kinds of economic inducements and also economic penalties that China can put on the table. Uh, China obviously does have that capacity and a growing capacity. And so if you don't have that economic capacity, if you feel that your, your freedom of maneuver within and your ability to shape the existing post-war order is constrained, what do you do? And I think it's, and, and I suspect we'll get to this, this point later, it is very important for Russia. One of Russia's, when you ask what is sort of Russia's long-term objective, I think that certainly one of its objectives is to dispel or disabuse the rest of the world of the perception, a perception that at least is prevalent in in certain parts of the world, uh, that Russia is uh, declining. Right. Uh, Russia very much bristles at the depiction of Moscow as being declining. It wants to remind the rest of the world that it matters. It wants to be seen as and acknowledged as a great power. And 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 then one last point, I promise I'll stop. One of the reasons why Russia is doubling down on its relationship with China, despite the, despite the asymmetry and despite some of the frictions in the relationship or suspicions that we might talk about later, is that um, Russia's relations with uh, the United States are not in a good place. Russia's relations with uh, the European Union are not in a particularly good place. Uh, Russia has tried its own version of a pivot eastward, but that that eastward pivot has borne mixed fruit. And so China is kind of your best bet. And so given that China is um, it's presently the locomotive or one of the locomotives of the global economy, it's more central to the global economy today than it was before the onset of the pandemic. Um, hitching yourself to uh, to a resurgent China seems to be a pretty good bet for reminding the rest of the world that, hey, we are a great power. So the upshot is they act as a spoiler. They have, after all, very little stake, as you say, in the rules-based international order and very little to lose, right? I mean, they, there's doing these things like election interference, there's not a lot of marginal cost, as you say, right? And, and I think that, that that point is really important, the, the point about marginal cost. And I think if you look at U.S.-China relations versus U.S.-Russia relations. Now, it's true that, and this is one of the reasons why I think it's important, as you were saying in your opening, it's very important to to, you know, to differentiate between China and Russia. 
at the 30,000 foot level, it's absolutely the case that U.S.-China relations are pro growing progressively more strained and U.S.-Russia relations are growing progressively more strained. But I think a critical difference is um, Russia in its, both I would say in its overall disposition vis-a-vis -vis the post-war order and also even in, in its relations with the United States, I think that it is more uh, risk tolerant. Maybe not risk embracing, but I think it's more risk tolerant. Isn't that a function though, just of, of simply having so little at stake? I think that that's, I think that's a crucial factor at work because China, unlike Russia, you know, China has, even though I, I think, and we can, we can have a discussion about whether China, you know, will in due course uh, emerge as a sort of a true peer competitor to the United States, whether China has a path towards overtaking the United States for global preeminence. I'm, uh, I, I'm skeptical, and, and for reasons that I, I've, I've uh, laid out in, in, in various pieces. But China, you can make a plausible case that China, on the basis of its a present economic centrality and technological capacity and its projected economic and, and technological uh, heft, you can make a case that China, and also if you look at its growing military uh, capabilities, particularly in the Asia-Pacific, you can make a credible case, you can construct a credible a case that China has a plausible path towards becoming a peer. You know, people do every day, right? <laughs> You'll see that prediction made constantly. And maybe and, not so much for, for Russia. Right? And it's important because let's just stipulate for argument's sake, let's, let's stipulate a maximalist case. So let's say that we have resolved the debate over China's, a, a very, a still a very, very fierce debate, but let's say for argument's sake that we have resolved the debate over China's long-term strategic intentions, and let's say that we have stipulated the maximalist perspective, that China uh, seeks to overtake the United States for global preeminence, it seeks to uh, dissolve the current order in due course and establish uh, a, a new order that is centered on China and that, is, that assimilates and absorbs sort of the, the Eurasian heartland uh, under, uh, under China. Let's stipulate that maximalist case. Well, there's one country in particular that has a significant capability to stand in your way, and that country is the United right. States. And so if I'm China, and if I have, and, and even if I don't harbor those, those maximalist objectives, but even if I'm thinking about continuing to deepen my footprint, expand my global influence, I can't afford a fundamental rupture, an irreversible rupture in my relationship with the world's lone superpower, which, particularly if it, uh, particularly if it joins forces with other advanced industrial democracies, could uh, really pose a challenge to my further resurgence. I don't think that Russia is really thinking of that in that way. I, I think I don't think that Russia believes that it could uh, realistically emerge into a peer competitor. And so, as you said, it feels that it has less to lose. It has less at stake in its bilateral relationship with the United States. And so, and then that raises an interesting question from a U.S. strategic perspective. And there's this, um, there's this interesting discussion slash debate about, you know, which country is a source of, uh, is a source of greater challenge or a source of greater, uh, you know, danger. And one of this, one of the distinctions that's at least some observers posit is that Russia in some ways might be a more proximate danger precisely because it feels that it has less to right. lose, precisely because it feels that it has less invested in its bilateral relationship, whereas China, um, yes, it, it will gradually pose more of a challenge, but it's not going to be as risk tolerant right. and risk embracing. So I think, again, getting at some of the differences between Beijing and Moscow. Short term versus long term disruptive cap capability, right? right that temporal right, dimension, right, right, right. yeah. So, you know, we've heard a lot of, of this, you know, as I say, Russia and China spoken of in one breath. Uh, I think you've done a very good job of looking at the differences, maybe intention and capability and, and what that what that produces. Let's look at the relationship between China and Russia, though. I think there's no doubt that the countries 
both uh, they obviously have deeply strained relations with the U.S. and with the West more broadly. Uh, but the picture that's often painted just suggests that Beijing and Moscow see eye to eye and are moving toward de facto alliance. What does this get wrong? How would you more accurately characterize China's relationship with Russia? So I've been thinking a lot about this topic. And a few months ago, I just out of curiosity, I I posted basically this inquiry on Twitter. And so I said, I, I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I tweeted something to the effect of, if you were to characterize uh, the relationship between China and Russia in, in one word or one phrase, you know, what would it be? Fill in the blank. And I was inundated with replies. I was I I was I was really you know quite overwhelmed by the number of replies. And what struck me was the diversity of responses. And, Did you make a word cloud? And if I were to sort of array those responses along a continuum, at at one end of the spectrum, you have observers who were rather pessimistic about the outlook for the relationship. Mm-hmm. They said. Look at look at the growing economic asymmetry. Look at the history of mutual suspicions. Look at potential flashpoints, particularly, for example, as China begins to uh, overtake in certain key dimensions uh, Russia in in Central Asia. And so, if you triangulate those factors, you have a, a picture of a relationship that is already on tenuous footing and is likely to grow further dubious. And then, at the other end of the spectrum, there were observers who. Uh, who really said that we are seeing the emergence of something resembling an authoritarian axis, uh, an authoritarian axis that is motivated not only by shared grievances, but by common aspirations. And then, of course, there were a number of a number of more sort of intermediate responses. But but and the reason that I give that that anecdote is that the relationship between China and Russia, I I would submit and and certainly my, my experience on Twitter sort of further persuaded me of this belief that it doesn't lend itself to simple characterizations, but it does, as you said, it does proceed with clear momentum. And I uh, I would argue that the relationship, you can describe it perhaps as um, an entente. I think that's probably the pithiest, uh, I think it's probably the pithiest description that, that captures some of the important elements of the relationship. And I would say that there are two uh, particularly important characteristics of uh, the relationship. Uh, one is intentional alignment. And secondly is strategic flexibility. And so I, I maybe I'll just sort of un- try to unpack each mm-hmm. of those elements um, a little bit. So intentional alignment. Uh, we often hear about we often hear about sort of the post 2014 acceleration of Sino-Russian uh, ties. And it's true that uh, after uh, after Russia's annexation of Crimea, which triggered Western sanctions, it is true. I, I think that Russia's annexation of Crimea and then the subsequent uh, imposition of sanctions by the West. I do think that that those developments marked an inflection point in the recent evolution of, of relations between China and Russia. But their rapprochement begins in earnest with the end of the Cold War. And I think that particularly with the, you know, with the implosion of the Soviet Union, so the implosion of the Soviet Union, it obviously is a humiliating outcome for Moscow, but it all it also is unnerving for the Chinese Communist sure. Party. And the CCP looking at the implosion of America's erstwhile competitor is feeling sort of newly uneasy about its own grip on on power. So so you have this this rapprochement that I think really, really dates in earnest to the end of the Cold War. And China and Russia, um, if, it's interesting. It's quite remarkable, actually. If you look at the rhetoric of their joint statements today, and if you compare it with the rhetoric from their joint statements from two decades ago, three decades ago, it's, it's quite, the rhetoric is quite sure, similar. Sure. So over the past 30 years, China and Russia have uh, shared a number of grievances per- against Western and I think particularly U.S. influence. They have grown, I think, more persuaded of those uh, of those grievances. So, so, so dynamic number one: intentional alignment. Um, 
China and Russia, we share a number of grievances about Western and particularly U.S. influence. So whether it is uh, the the centrality of the U.S. dollar in global financial markets, whether it is the the promotion of democracy, whether it is the reach of America's alliances and partnerships. So we have intentional alignment. What can China and Russia collectively do to push back against the reach of U.S. influence? But dynamic number two, uh, and this is where I think some of the wrinkles and some of the nuances come in and why I would push back somewhat on either characterizations that China and Russia currently have an alliance or presumptions that they will in due course uh, uh, develop an alliance. The second dynamic is strategic flexibility. And you, know, you talked about the, the skirmishes in 1969. Uh, that episode really, uh, it etched itself very firmly into, um, into the leadership in China, into the leadership in, in Russia. So China and Russia, it is true, they had an alliance, but the alliance that they formed, um, it imbued their relationship with a certain rigidity. And that rigidity really became more and more of a problem because even though China and Russia, or excuse me, China and the Soviet Union, uh, it is true again at the thirty thousand foot level that they were both that they were both communist uh, powers, but they had very different they had very different understandings of how to promulgate revolutionary ideology. And so what ended up happening was the divergences between their understandings of how best to promulgate this revolutionary ideology and I think China's uh, China's bristling at the Soviet what it believed to be the Soviet Union's condescending attitude. Um, those phenomena uh, became harder and harder to uh, to uh, accommodate under this this uh, under the auspices of an alliance. And so, this uh, rigidity it explodes in quite dramatic fashion. And again, in 1969, uh, China and the Soviet Union nearly go to war. So I think that one of the lessons that uh, Today, I think one of the lessons that China and Russia take from their historical experience is you want to have a relationship that has enough sort of inbuilt freedom of maneuver so that you can continue to grow your ties, but that you don't unduly constrain yourself. Now, how does that strategic flexibility manifest today? I think an important manifestation is that on certain touchy, on certain delicate issues or on certain touchy issues, China and Russia are rather reticent. So, for example, when Crimea, Ukraine, the Crimea, right, right. Yeah, exactly. So, so if you, I, I think Crimea is a very, Crimea is a very uh, interesting example. So, so Russia annexes Crimea, and when China is asked, well, what do you have to say? China is is noticeably circumspect, and I think on the flip side, when Russia is asked, well, what do you make of China's uh, maritime claims in the South China Sea? Again, Russia is rather circumspect. Right. So I think, and, and China and Russia, I I, I believe. I believe President Putin was interviewed uh, not too long ago, and he was asked. He, uh, I, I wish I remember the forum in, in which he was interviewed. But President Putin was asked that uh, to comment on the possibility of a, uh, of a of a formal military alliance between China and Russia, and and Putin said something to the effect of, you know, I meaning President Putin. He said I wouldn't disclaim the possibility in theory. Maybe you know China and and Russia might uh, form military alliance, but he says that as of yet, neither Beijing nor Moscow believe that such an alliance is necessary. Right. So I think, and so if you if you combine those dynamics, intentional alignment, but strategic flexibility, um, I think that the combination of those factors lends itself to an entente. So an entente is, at least as I understand it, it's a relationship that continues to it has the room to continue growing along the full gamut of dimensions, military, economic, diplomatic, 
but it doesn't impose undue rigidity. It doesn't impose undue burdens on either country. And so if there are very sensitive issues, um, China and Russia don't necessarily have to proceed in lockstep. So it's it's um, not, and, not living together yet. It's serious dating. There's no ring. There's no engagement, right? And, Certainly no marriage. And I think... And I think that also that flexibility is important because, and 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 maybe we might talk more about this factor, you know, later on. I do think that over the long term. So, so for the, if we if we take a snapshot of the relationship today, so you know, I I've, I was commenting earlier about the economic, the sort of the growing economic asymmetry between China and Russia. You know, for the time being, it seems that you know Russia has accommodated itself to a junior partner sort of it has accommodated itself to and it has in some ways perhaps even embraced its its junior partner status um, and i think that it has done so i would argue for three reasons the first which i mentioned earlier is that um, given that its relationship with the united states um, is strained and increasingly so its relationship with many countries in western europe is increasingly strained Given that its eastward pivot hasn't really, it's it's born, I think, mixed fruit. So reason number one is, well, gosh, if if I eliminate the United States, the European Union, um, many of the advanced industrial democracies in the Asia Pacific, I don't really have that many options for burnishing my great power credentials um, unless I hitch a ride to a resurgent China. So that's reason number one for doubling down on my relationship. Or for accepting my my junior, sort of my junior, partner, partner, yeah, status. junior partner status. The second reason I would say is just a a pragmatic one, and again I I, I got at this earlier. But uh, if you look at China's extant economic centrality, its projected economic centrality, it makes sense to hitch my to hitch myself to a resurgent sure. China. And there's also a psychological reason, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Um, China, uh, that Russia really bristles at the suggestion that it is in decline. It wants to, a, a core aspect, a core objective of its foreign policy is to be, uh, so it's to, to achieve great power status, however you define, uh, however you define that status, to be seen as a great power and to be acknowledged as a great power. Hmm. I'm not sure how, how hitching yourself to China does that. I mean, doesn't, don't you just, isn't your decline just sort of even more apparent in, in juxtaposition with the guy standing next to you? So it's, it, it, so I, I thought, I, I, I was actually just in advance of our conversation, I was thinking about precisely this question, you know, does your, do some of your sort of extant frailties become more apparent if you isolate yourself or if you juxtapose yourself against someone whose trajectory is far more promising? And I, I think I, I could be persuaded either way, but I think that from a from a strategic perspective, uh, you know, Russia might uh, Russia might have certain reservations about China. There are historical suspicions that that may in the long term become, you know, may increasingly weigh on their relationship. But leave aside China. So why is Russia? You know, if you were to argue that Russia is a great power, and even here there is a debate among there is a debate among observers about. So first of all, how do we even classify great power? I mean, the term great power, it's one of those phenomena. <laughs> Let's not it, get it's into a phenomena this. That's, that's just too off track. But uh, No, right, that's right, fair. Right. But um, so, so I, I think that, you know, yes, Russia, it has, you look at its, you know, you look at its nuclear arsenal, you look at its membership, its, its, its uh, uh, status on the United Nations Security Council, you look at its energy reserves. So Russia has formidable assets, but I think... Um, what its relationship with China allows it to do, I think it takes, 
it imbues Russia's trajectory with a certain dynamism. So if you leave aside China, and if you don't hitch your ride to China, then basically you are presenting yourself as a great power on the basis of longstanding assets. Um, I think that by hitching yourself to China, in addition to uh, in addition to discussing sort of your long-standing assets, you say there's a dyna- there's a dynamism in my great power status that as China grows its influence, that I get to. So I, I I think its relationship with China it introduces a sort of a certain element of dynamism into okay. in the relationship. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's that's fair. Ali, just now you you talked about a couple of of, of pivot points of of really you know sort of inflection points uh, in in this development and one of them of course is you know the 89 through 91 period you know that t- culminates in in the the failed hardliner coup and then the dissolution of the Soviet Union uh, there's another one though that you you said in then 2014 of course after, in, in the aftermath of the annexation of the Crimea and and uh, the the civil war basically in Ukraine what about the period around 2007? I mean, a lot of people would date this to Putin's address at the Munich Security Conference, where he just really just lets fly. I mean, he rails against NATO's eastward expansion. He attacks this whole idea of universal human rights as some kind of Western particularism. He accuses all these states advocating you know, universal human rights as basically just pursuing their own national self-interests. Uh, his whole tone is that, again, you know, Russia has been treated with disrespect, bordering on contempt. And then the next year, of course, we see the Georgian War. I mean, many people, myself included, would would also date the downturn in U.S.-China relations to not long after that. I mean, there were some bright spots in the relationship, you know, with the uh, cyber espionage agreement and uh, climate, you know, bringing China, you know, on board with Paris. But I, I feel like that timing isn't coincidence. Um, what's your sense? I mean, because these the number of shared grievances are many, right? You know, there's the grievances just uh, with your your basic you know hey the us is trying to maintain this kind of unipolar hegemonism there is this uh feeling that you know we're ringed in both countries feel they're ringed in by hostile us allies they both feel like at bottom the united states and many of its western allies do not regard their governments as legitimate um and you hear this i mean the same invocation always of color revolutions of the arab spring um so what what's your sense uh, of of the, this moment, that moment of the, the late aughts? Definitely, for, certainly from from Russia's perspective, you're absolutely right that, that Putin's speech at the Munich Security Conference is, uh, it's very pointed. It's, and as you said, really sort of no holds barred. I think for China, also in the late aughts, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought up this, again, sort of this inflection point, you really can't, you really can't, I would say, overstate the significance in terms of not only shaping, maybe not so much shaping the material balance between the United States and China, but I think in some ways shaping the psychological balance between the United States and China, um, the significance of the global yeah, financial yeah, crisis. If I were trying to assemble a chronology and a chronology consisting of key inflection points shaping sort of China's assessment of America's resilience, um, if you wanted to extend the timeline, I think one could plausibly begin maybe as far back as the Asian financial crisis or the Asian currency crisis in the late 1990s, which really compels not only China, but I think compels many countries in the Asia Pacific to believe that they need to rely less on Western uh, stimulus, that they need to uh, pursue uh, greater integration within the Asia Pacific region. So one inflection point potentially is is the late 1990s. I think uh, another I wouldn't say it's sort of a discrete inflection point, but as America's interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq start going south, 
I think that China feels that the United States, it's getting bogged down in the Middle East. It's uh, its strategic bandwidth is is also limited. That, that feels like that's part of what produces Munich, right? I mean, is this sense that it's, right? it's it, it's I, I think I think the interventions in in Afghanistan and Iraq are are important mm-hmm. in in shaping uh, sort of psychologically how how Beijing and Moscow appraise America's staying power. And then 2008 happens. The uh, the financial crisis I think is a very significant inflection point in in making. And now, and I should say at this point, now, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, the the view that the United States had entered into a phase of terminal decline, based on what I know and based on what I've read, I don't think that I don't think that that view was by any means the center of gravity within the Chinese foreign policy establishment. But I think it started. I think it started gaining traction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so two thousand eight is an important uh, inflection point. Um, I think that also the twenty sixteen election, and then also the the. So not only the 2016 election, uh, but also I think that just you know, the the whole Trump the administration, years the Trump yeah, administration, yeah. in which you know the United States during that period it was it was taking a more confrontational approach towards China, but in the same breath as it was issuing you know declarations targeting China, it was also um, it was also entangling many longstanding U.S. allies and partners in the same breath, and so there was a scattershot approach. So I think that at the end of the Trump administration. I think that China again was sort of more deeply emboldened in its its sort of judgment that um, that the United States had entered into terminal decline, and then we see uh, I think the pandemic marks another inflection point, and it's interesting in the initial months of the pandemic when I think that there were many uh, there were questions about how China's economy would fare, how you know so how its economy would fare. Uh, how it would sort of rebound from the pandemic. Uh, if you look at statements put out by uh, by President Xi, he talks a lot about sort of gr- you know great challenges that China is facing internally, great challenges that China is facing externally. I think once China begins to recover from the pandemic, the the rhetoric becomes much more confident. And so, as as Xi uh, you know, famously stated uh, at the beginning of this year, he said, you know, time and the situation are on our right. side, or ti- time and the situation are are in our favor or on our side. And so. I think you look at 2008. You look at uh, you look at I, I think the 2016 election. You look at the uh, the pandemic. So I, I think that China is feeling increasingly confident. Uh, confident, yeah. but but I but I agree with you that that going to the late aughts and certainly 2007 2008. I think that for both China and Russia, I, th- I think is a mm-hmm. it's a significant mm-hmm. inflection. So point. this kind of brings us up to the present day. I, I'm curious: is that old IR concept that I introduced the strategic triangle? Is that still something that enters into the thinking of people in your world? You know, at Rand uh, or used to be, or at the Eurasia Group, or or at other think tanks, or is it kind of something that's just discredited or has lost currency entirely? I mean, I ask this because it seems to be completely disregarded, at least in the Biden administration. I, I mean, if it mattered at all, then the U.S. isn't playing that game particularly well. I mean, just days before Anchorage, where Antony Blinken and Jake Sullivan met with Yang Jitsher and Wang Yi, President Biden took this ABC News uh, interview where he was asked a pretty difficult question, obviously, you know, do you think Putin is a killer? But, you know, he answered by simply saying, mm-hmm, I, I do. Uh, what is at work here? I mean, does the Biden administration's foreign policy team just not care that um, its behavior seems to be driving Beijing and Moscow more and more into one another's arms? Um, the, or does it just maybe believe that, I don't know, drawing a contrast between 
you know, the U.S. and the and its EU and other democratic allies on the one hand, and the world's autocratic, illiberal states uh, on the other, into more stark relief, will maybe solidify uh, these all important alliances. What, what's the thinking here? Do you do you suppose? So my sense is that there is still, fr- from time to time, I'll see analyses that. Uh, and and I would say even you know even to the present, from time to time, I see analyses that suggest that perhaps this this notion of a strategic you know triangle still obtains, and that perhaps in the long term, uh, not even in the long term, but there's a suggestion that you know, the United States has you know should place some premium on uh, on uh, maybe not, maybe not strengthening its relationship with Russia, but perhaps seeing if there are ways in which Washington and Moscow can can t- kind of dial down the temperature and the thought is that you know the United States if if the United States is able to enlist Russia that the United States and, and Russia you know together perhaps they pose a more formidable challenge to China and I, I've I've seen I, I see that suggestion every now and then but I think that for reasons that we've gotten uh, you know we've discussed I, I think that most observers probably are not are not too sanguine about that prospect, and I, I so think the, the, the things that got really, laughed at a lot in that ridiculous long telegram or longer telegram, right? Well, it lies in the, the real calculate. I think the real reason why, for the time being at least, the strategic the, the, this notion of you know perhaps you know drawing you know drawing Russia away and and forming some kind of you know U.S. Russia arrangement against China. I think the real reason. Uh, well, well, let's look at China first, and then I'll come to Russia. I th- China, I, I don't think it really has, it doesn't have any self-evident in, incentive to uh, disrupt its relationship with Russia. So Russia, it's a reliable source of energy, mm-hmm. it's a reliable source of arms. And so, uh, now China, now obviously, China, I don't think that China depends on Russia nearly as much as the other way around, but I don't think that China has any sort of self-evident reason to, to disrupt its relationship with Russia. Right. Um, and then Russia, for its part, um, I think that this, I think that the stakes of alienating China would be far more significant. So um, if I'm if I'm Russia, what happens if I I take a, if I take the gamble? So what happens if I say, OK, I'm going to because I have I have long term apprehensions about China's uh, in Central Asia. I have long term apprehensions about this growing economic asymmetry. What happens if China in in 10 years or in 20 years decides that it really doesn't need Russia anymore and kind of dispenses with Russia. So let's say that I'm Russia and I, in view of those long-term, medium to long-run uh, apprehensions, I decide to join forces with the United States. Uh, well, there are a number of uh, problems with that gambit. Uh, number one, it's not clear to me that I will necessarily be warmly embraced because there are, for a number of reasons, there are significant and enduring, I think, structural flashpoints uh, between the United States and Russia, and so even if Russia were to indicate that it might be interested in in joining forces, it's not clear that the United States would uniformly embrace it. I think that there are a lot. Yeah, of, I don't think uh, there are there, possible of, inducements on either side, either from Washington or from Moscow. I feel like. And then, and then, what happens if so? There's so there's a concern that if I uh, if I try to join forces, I might not be sort of uniformly embraced in Washington. But there's also the concern. That if I'm seen as participating in a, even if it's an informal arrangement, but if I'm perceived as participating even informally in an arrangement that basically is aimed at, at constricting China's further resurgence, there's a concern that China might say, you really shouldn't have done that. Right. And what happens if China cuts me off? And so I, I think because if you look at, so if you look at the concerns 
vis-a-vis Washington, if you look at the concerns vis-a-vis Beijing, it, it's not really clear to me that Russia has any incentive to to go along right. with such an arrangement. We don't need to take and much so, time to dis- – I think we can just kind of sort of you know, dismiss this idea pretty quickly out of hand. I and mean, move on to something yeah, I think so which the, is much more interesting, which is sure. you know, Putin's party is not the CCP. I mean, it doesn't have yeah. you know the same sort of influence throughout society. It doesn't dominate the entirety of the state bureaucracy the way the CCP does in China. Uh, there is still an opposition in Russia, uh, as impotent as it sometimes looks. Uh, there are other political parties. Uh, NGOs that operate independently in Russia still, state-owned enterprises, uh, do not comprise uh, the same kind of proportion of, of the Russian economy that they do of China's economy, you know, the SOEs in China. I, I think we can all agree that that's the case. What does this do? Does this would seem to make Putin just more brittle, ultimately, than Xi. Um, does this mean, as many people seem to have concluded, that, that China is maybe the more proper object of more American competitive effort and energy. I think if you look at if you look at China versus Russia, I think it's there are reasons to be. So the one argument that I've heard, and and this is this is basically sort of a, a prelude to saying that it makes sense that China is is animating U.S. attention more than Russia. One argument that I've heard is that because Russia, according to some observers, there are some observers who say who assess Russia to be in decline, and history demonstrates that. Uh, structurally declining powers, they are more uh, they are more risk tolerant, or maybe even more risk embracing, and therefore they pose more proximate dangers as they as they continue their decline. Right. So there's that there's that argument, but I I think that on balance, if you look at which which country poses a more systemic challenge in terms of its um, its aggregate capabilities, so its its economic influence, its technological uh, capacity, its uh, its military uh, correlation of forces, and then in turn, uh, I think if you it, what I, I think the sort of the real source of China's sort of power and influence is there is an economic component, there's a technological component, there's a military component, but I think that China, if you add up those those various levers of power, those various levers of influence, there is a narrative component here. Uh, I think that what China is trying to do, I would say, is in addition to competing with the United States on those very along those various dimensions that I mentioned, it's trying to gain traction for I would say two parallel reinforcing narratives. Narrative number one, and I think that we saw this narrative on abundant display at the Anchorage summit that you discussed earlier. Narrative number one is that China is uh, inexorably resurgent; it is resuming its rightful place in world history, and in parallel. The United States has entered into a phase of terminal decline. The United States is clinging to a model of, of domestic governance whose frailties are becoming more manifest by the day. It is clinging to uh, a system of geopolitics whose weaknesses are becoming more and whose obsolescence is becoming more apparent by the day. And I think that what China is trying to, to convey with those two parallel narratives, to the extent that it can gain traction for them, I think that what China is saying is, look, uh, if you believe in those narratives, and if you believe that this imbalance, or that this that China is going to continue to narrow the strategic balance with the United States, then you may not like how we conduct ourselves internally. You may not like how we conduct ourselves abroad. But you, meaning the rest of the world, you need us more than the other way around. So I I think that it makes sense, given the given the differences between. China and Russia's material capabilities, their long-term strategic prospects, it does make sense to, and and therefore the way in which they approach relations with the U.S., how they approach the post-war order, it does make sense to differentiate between the two countries. I think that one of the, um, I, I think that one of the uh, 
mistakes that I saw if you look at the during the Trump administration, if you look at not only some of the high level documents, whether the the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, but a lot of the um, a lot of the accompanying you know speeches, high level speeches, pronouncements, and so forth, there was a tendency to refer to China and Russia in immediate juxtapositions. Oh, not not and I mean just lumping them together, not even in juxtaposition, right? I mean they're lumping right, them right, together right, right. exactly. And and so if you look at a lot of the language, it's you know China and Russia seek to revise the post war right, order. Right. China and Russia are are doing A, B, and C. And if you if you take two countries and if you do lump them together, uh, you essentially uh, you you lend further credence to their supposition that the United States is trying to counter them both at the same time. So I think that it makes sense to to differentiate between them. And if you look at what I've been encouraged by, I think if you look at the, and we have to see what comes out in the in the formal national security strategy and in the in the formal national defense strategy. But if you look at the interim guidance that the White House has put out, there's a clear differentiation between. China and Russia. In, so I, I would emphasize two elements. One, there's a clear differentiation between China and Russia in terms of the material capabilities that they can bring to bear, their long-term outlooks, uh, you know, number one. And I think that that differentiation is important. Um, and I would also say that in terms of what we've seen thus far, even though it's true that America's relationship with China and America's relationship with, with Russia, yet it is true that those relationships are growing more strained. But I don't think that we're seeing kind of sort of full-spectrum confrontation. Uh, I think that there is a recognition, and I think that COVID-19 tragically has, has placed this reality in stark relief. I think there's a recognition that on certain core transnational issues, whether it is, uh, whether it is a fast-moving crisis such as a pandemic, whether it is a slower-burning emergency uh, crisis or challenge such as climate change, so whether, so just take an inventory of, of the big challenges of the day. So uh, pandemic disease, climate change, uh, arms proliferation, we can go on and on and on. I think there's a recognition that absent some baseline of dialogue with communication with cooperation with China and Russia on those big issues, that America stands to undercut its own vital national interests. And so my prediction would be, based on what I've seen thus far, is that we will see, I would I would expect, a further differentiation or, or a further continuation of differentiating between China and Russia okay also more of an attempt to compartmentalize competitive versus cooperative elements in the relationship. And, and really, that's the essence of diplomacy is um, that in dealing, with, in dealing with actors that you don't like or in dealing with actors that you have grave apprehensions about, um, when your vital national interests are implicated, you find ways of compartmentalizing. So in the Cold War, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, obviously, they, had, uh, they certainly had no love lost for one another. They both believed themselves to be exceptional. They both were promulgating, uh, actively promulgating uh, antithetically or antithetical ideologies. And yet, uh, particularly with the experience of the Cuban Missile Crisis, they said, we need to establish uh, hotlines. We need to establish arms control agreements. Um, we need to establish uh, de-escalation protocols if and when our uh, armed forces come into confrontation with one another, and even outside the realm of of security. Yeah, you know, Soyuz and has, all sorts of all sorts of space cooperation and right, right, right. Well, not only not only that level of co- or not only that kind of cooperation, but also uh, smallpox cooperation um, on smallpox vaccine sure, research. Sure. And I think that COVID nineteen has has brought that has brought that anecdote into. But we also had with uh, the you know the Pugwash conferences. We had 
cooperation between scientists. So I, I think a key takeaway from the Cold War, as it as it pertains to U.S.-China relations and, and U.S.-Russia relations today, is that when the United States and the Soviet Union, these are, you know, these were existential adversaries, and yet, despite being, or actually, I should say, not even despite being, perhaps because they were existential adversaries, they recognized that they had to demarcate and compartmentalize, and they realized that they had to carve out a space for a limited cooperation so that they didn't undermine their own vital national interests. And so that's, I, I suspect that, um, and, and I'll just make one last point and then I'll stop. You know, when COVID-19 really, really began accelerating in earnest, we started seeing um, we've st- we started seeing a lot of kind of this this familiar line of commentary, this familiar prognostication that you know COVID nineteen means the end of globalization. It means the end of the nation state. It means the end of uh, and we saw a lot of commentary about the specter of decoupling. And I think that what we're seeing now is that a lot of the sentiments associated with deglobalization are indeed intensifying. So we see a resurgence of nationalistic and populistic sentiment. We do see that frictions and strategic tensions between great powers are intensifying. We see that uh, a loss of confidence in international institutions. And yet, the challenges associated with and intensified by globalization, they're not going anywhere. They're only, get, they're only going to intensify. And so I, I think that reality will continue to intrude. I do think, and I, I fully expect, that the United States, China, and Russia, while in certain components uh, of their relations, I think that intentions that tensions will continue to intensify but i do think that on these big transnational issues not out of altruism not out of charity but just out of a basic self basic instincts towards self-preservation i expect that we will start to see more in the way of rudimentary dialogues or an expansion of existing dialogues and i think that that's for the well, it's tempting to want to stop on that optimistic note but i do have a few more <laughs> questions that i sure, need to put sure. to you um let's talk a little bit about the strategies and the tactics that china and russia have deployed with respect to the u.s because i think this is a really important and significant difference you flicked earlier uh, at the usic's report on foreign interference in the 2020 election but more broadly speaking, I mean, if you look at uh, China's so, so-called influence operations, and if you look, you know, their media strategies and so forth, and you look at Russians, Russia's, they're, they're very, very different. One of the tactics that, that Putin has frequently used, I mean, really both domestically, you know, within, within Russia itself, but also abroad directed, you know, against the polities of, of the West, the EU and the United States, it's been this whole decentering of truth and really and morality. Uh, it's something that a lot of people have remarked on, and something that Trump himself, I think, is is accused of having sort of adopted from from Russia. I mean, it's this very deeply cynical kind of nihilistic approach uh, that that says, you know, hey, let's just pull out the whole moral and epistemic rug from underneath uh, society uh, if you don't believe there can be truth, um, then, you know, you can just sort of accept an arbitrary truth. I, I don't see that as, as something that's coming out of China, even from the, the most sort of strident wolf warrior types. It's 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 positing sort of an alternative uh, set of truths, but it's still hewing to this idea that there is one, not not this kind of nihilism. Uh, what do you make of, of this difference? And, and uh, I mean, because I, to me, that is a truly alarming uh, it's 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 the thing that I worry most about in in the degradation of of civic culture in America. Yeah, I, well, I think that that di- I, I think that you really hit the nail on the head, and I think that that the distinction that you I shouldn't say posited I think the distinction the distinction that you illuminated it goes back to sort of a thread of converse a thread of our conversation that we were having earlier, which um, I think that. 
there is a, a reasonable correlation between the differences in their sort of narrative strategies and the differences in their material capabilities and strategic outlooks. Uh, I think that, again, because Russia, uh, Russia bristles at the notion that it is a, uh, a decli- structurally declining power, Russia bristles at its what it believes to be its exclusion from the post-war order. And and I think that, but Russia also recognizes, I think, going to my earlier point, that it doesn't have a plausible path to being a peer competitor. And so its mode of exerting influence, it's more in the realm of disruption. Right, right. And so an important element of fomenting disruption is uh, engaging in or trafficking in what you suggested, this notion of information nihilism. And so I think it's interesting how this narrative has evolved um, in recent, you know, it, I think I feel, you know, four years ago, five years ago, when I would read discussions of Russian disinformation operations, there was there was sometimes a suggestion that Russia was it wanted to elevate certain positions in the United States, or it wanted to, it wanted it it, it favored certain you know, candidates, it wanted to elevate certain positions, it wanted the United States to gravitate towards reaching certain conclusions on its pressing socioeconomic challenges. I think now more and more. The I, I I don't want to say consensus, but I think a more an increasingly prevalent view is that Russia is not particularly wedded to a given ideology, a given party in the United States. It's not wedded to a particular position that the United States takes, but rather it's it's more interested in just kind of collapsing the boundaries, right. sowing chaos, the demarcations, right. just, yeah. and, and and the idea and sowing narrative chaos. And so I think that Russia's objective is um, if we can not only sort of not only stir the pot and amplify extant socioeconomic fissures in the United States, but if we can convince policymakers, observers, citizens that there is no objective truth on a given issue, that the pursuit of truth is is a pointless is a pointless exercise. Whereas with China, I get the sense that they they are engaged in a much more proactive uh, a much more proactive offensive narrative kind of competition because I think that China believes that, as as she said, China believes that time and the situation are in its favor. And so what we're seeing coming out of China, it's it's quite actually remarkable. Although not particularly successful. At, I mean, you, you, well, if you look at if, if you look at the, uh, I mean, just just judging on just judging by Twitter. I mean, if you look at some of the you know the tweets, I mean, Chinese. Uh, you know, wolf warriors, Chinese you know, uh, officials. I mean, if you look at, for example, some of the, the spokespersons for the uh, China's foreign ministry, they devote a lot of their, they devote a lot of tweets, not only to amplifying uh, China's performance, but they, but to spotlighting America's internal challenges. And so they talk about, they talk about racial discrimination. They talk about, uh, they talk about America's. Um, I mean, any. I mean, yeah, you, you, you name sort of, it. Right. You right. name America's internal challenges, and there will be there will be a tweet. And I, so I think that one of the differences it's, and Russia does this as well. I mean, Russia certainly joins China very often in spotlighting uh, America's, uh, and not just America's internal. That's, that's just your basic what about ism, right? I mean, it's it doesn't go well beyond that. And what's interesting, it, well, it, Ali? It, I mean, I just to, to bring this to another topic. Sure. You know, in in its practice in the Middle East, it, it kind of mm. follows a parallel strategy of, of again, spoiler, of, of, you know, kind of disruptor, throwing sand in the gears, as I think you, you, you put it in a piece that you wrote for Lawfare. Is there a way that you think Russia and China can meaningfully cooperate in the Middle East? I mean, it's, I mean, it, they seem to take pretty different approaches. I mean, look, look 
the Russians are, are involved very, very deeply in the civil war in Syria. They're involved in Libya. China is not so far. China has done this strange th- feat where it's managed to thread that needle in the main conflict of the region between, you know, the Iranians and, and the Saudis, right? Uh, they've not managed to, to piss off either the Israelis or the Pal- Palestinians. It's been really remarkable. Uh, it would seem to me that China would have no uh, incentive to align itself at all with Russia's position in the region. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I, I would say the only potential synergy in the Middle East, and I, I think this synergy would be, I, I don't even know if I would call it a synergy, but the, the one potential interaction, and I think that this would be perhaps an, an inadvertent one, is to the extent that disruptive Russian activities perhaps create certain opportunities for China to further its influence. And so as an example, you know, I've heard some speculation that, well, look how costly it's going to be to to reconstruct sort of a a war-torn Syria. Look how costly it's going to be to, uh, you know, as Libya tries to emerge out of its its civil war. Again, China's there. Russia might not have the... Yeah, so, you know, Russia might not have the economic... So Russia has planted a foothold in Syria and Libya. It has established itself in recent years as a significant external actor, but it doesn't have the economic you know, wherewithal to contribute to the resuscitation of those two countries. Or even necessarily the China. incentive to do so. I mean, especially if you're talking about hydrocarbons. I mean, just why would we want to enable another competitor on the market, you know? Right. And so, you know, so one possibility is that in areas where, you know, Russia has extended itself militarily, um, but you have countries that are struggling to, to, to recuperate economically and, and, and economic struggles that have been compounded by uh, uh, oil price you know, fluctuations and COVID-19 that perhaps China could step in. But, but I, I think that your bro- your, the broader distinction that you posit really obtains in that uh, you know, China's strategy thus far has been, I mean, I remember actually reading, it was a piece back in two, 2006, actually, um, and Steve Clemens, uh, it, it, I, I, I should find the link to this piece. I know Steve, um, yeah. So Steve Clemens um, wrote a piece in 2006, and this was at a time when America's interventions in Afghanistan and in Iraq were, were really, really going south. There was a lot of questions about sort of our the potential for a military solution, the sort of what is America's over, sort of long-term objective. And anyhow, so Steve Clemens, he interviewed, I, I, it, was a, it was a high-ranking uh, a foreign policy official in, in China, and Steve Clemens was asking this official, uh, an unnamed official, about sort of China's grand strategy, its long-term strategic objectives. And this official offered a number of, of answers. And one of the answers was, we hope, we meaning in China, we hope that the United States continues to remain bogged down militarily in the Middle East because um, the, only, the only country that can really stand in the way of China's continued resurgence is the United States. And if the United States is bogged down militarily, it's, it's all, it's, it's all for, uh, for the good. So my sense is that I, I think that that broad, you know, thinking still obtains. I think that China, having observed, uh, having observed the extent to which America's preoccupation with the Middle East or its preoccupation in the Middle East has bogged it down militarily and strategically for the past two decades, I think that China will say, "Look, um, we don't want to. We want to avoid the, that sort of that that uh, mistake. We want to build up our influence uh, primarily through uh, economic." inducements. And, and, and you're right, thus far, although I would stipulate, you know, thus far, um, I do think that China has thus far succeeded in, in concurrently strengthening its ties with Iran, as well as with countries that don't look favorably upon Iran. Although, um, 
whether China can whether China can indefinitely sustain that balancing act, I think is an open question. I think if China were somehow, um, and I think that history cautions against that type of I think hubristic point of view, um, I think that I, I don't think that China should should bet on indefinitely being able to extend the Belt and Road Initiative in, in the Middle East, extend its economic footprint in the Middle East, and remain wholly immunized from the region's right, geopolitical that's, that's rivalries. completely unrealistic. One final question for you. Does China pay a price for its association with a country as disruptive as Russia, one that is just so broadly disliked by the United States and its, its main allies? I don't get the sense that that China pays a substantial reputational or incurs a substantial reputational cost beyond that, uh, which it would incur um, if it weren't involved with Russia and if it were just sort of pursuing its 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 broader foreign policy. Um, and I think, if anything, um, in some in some cases, I think actually the the association with with Russia um, is is somewhat helpful to China. And that you know, Russia. I I, I don't know who I was. I was speaking with uh, I was speaking with someone a few months ago, and and someone someone gave an analogy, which which I I, I thought it's debatable, but I thought that it was illuminating mm-hmm. uh, and thought provoking. And the idea was that uh, imagine that you know you walk into a bar, and you know so China you know so you know China walks into uh, China walks into a bar. It's looking to kind of to sort of scope out you know who, who all who all else is in the bar. You know Russia is kind of it's it's off in a corner. It's it's drunk. It's getting involved in. It's brawling with other people. It's stumbling into other patrons in the bar, and and China says, "Uh, we we really don't want to sort of get involved with that." But, um, and and so, so essentially though, um, if China, if Russia is stumbling and if it's bumping into other patrons, um, maybe when those patrons you know they come around to China and China says, "Oh, you know, let's have a conversation." So I, I think to the extent that Russia uh, does some of the engages in certain disruptive activities, engages in certain perhaps even reckless activities, and allows, uh, perhaps creates certain inroads or certain opportunities for China to exercise influence, maybe. Bad cop. But I, I would say that otherwise, I, I see China looking at Russia as, I don't think that China looks at Russia necessarily as being kind of this sweet, generous, sort of indispensable uh, you know, player. I, I think that China certainly, it benefits, as I said, it benefits from its energy relationship, it benefits from its military relationship, and I do also think that Russia sometimes gives diplomatic cover to uh, to uh, to China. And I think that, uh, and so what I would say is that, but but one last point, and then I'll I'll stop on the on sort of the ideological dimension of sort of the the China Russia relationship. I think that there is a difference, and I think it's important. It's important to to posit a difference between uh, China and Russia premising their relationship on a shared ideological conviction and actively looking to inculcate a certain ideology versus um, engaging in a relatively sort of transactional uh, foreign policy and hoping that one of the byproducts of that transactional foreign policy is greater breathing room, greater sort of space for authoritarianism to flourish. Yeah, I think we're pretty clear that it is the latter. It is very much. Yeah, and I think, and and I think that that's important because if and and one of the reasons, and and you you know you kindly mentioned the piece that I wrote for the Wire. One of the arguments that I tried to make in there is that um, if we look at this, if we look at the relationship between China and Russia, and we discern a relationship in which 
China and Russia are motivated not only by shared grievances, but they are also motivated even more importantly by common aspirations and that those common aspirations have an ideological valence. That type of diagnosis is, I think, more concerning. If, on the other hand, we look at the relationship between China and Russia and say it is gaining momentum, it is multifaceted, uh, but look at, again, the growing economic asymmetry, look at different foreign policy approaches, look at the... Uh, historical suspicions. Yeah, I, I I tend to be, I tend to think when I look at the relationship, I look at it as a kind of a chronic condition rather than as a systemic threat. And now chronic conditions are, uh, they are challenging, but there's a difference between a chronic condition that I think lends itself to patient sustained management versus a systemic threat that really merits a much more urgent and proactive response. And so I think that in looking at um, in looking at the challenge from China, the, the competitive challenge from China, the competitive challenge from Russia, and then the competitive challenge from this deepening Sino-Russian Entente, when I look at each of those three phenomena, um, I see significant differentiated challenges, but I don't, I don't necessarily believe that any of them needs or should overwhelm America's ability to, to think strategically. Ali Wine, thank you so much for taking the time for joining and for sharing your insights with me and yeah, and with our listeners. Let, let's move on now to the recommendation segment. First, a quick reminder that the best way to support the work that we do here at the Seneca Podcast is to subscribe to SupChina Access, our daily email newsletter. That's really just chock full of all the news you need on China. Uh, we need you to do your part. And I promise if you aren't already subscribing, you will find it worth the money and then some. So check out SupChina Access and... While you're at it, check out SubChina AM, our new business-focused newsletter that we send out in the early morning U.S. time. It's put together by our fabulous business editor, Cho Chang, and by Jeremy. So, uh, on to recommendations. What you got for us, Ali? But two recommendations. Um, so one is uh, one is a book, and one is a documentary series. So the book um, is is Ryan Haas's new book, Stronger: Colon, Adapting America's China Strategy in an Age of Competitive Interdependence. And I and I really highly recommend. This book, because it, I, I think it finds a, a midway point f- from a U.S. perspective, it finds a midway point between complacence and consternation, and I think it's very, very important to. You're preaching to the choir, man. We've had him on the show to talk about it, and it is just fantastic. If you haven't, for some reason, listened to that podcast yet, just get out there and do that because Ryan is is just like my, my favorite guy. His his so his book. So I, I would highly recommend. Um, my second recommendation is. Totally, sort of. Uh, it's not topical, but I think it, it's it's something that I, I would nonetheless rec- uh, highly recommend. Uh, a docu series by Sanjay Gupta. It's called Chasing Life, um, and he he released this in 2019. And so the the, the premise it's a six part series, and um, in each episode, uh, Dr. Gupta visits a different country, and as the as the title suggests, Chasing Life, he's in search of secrets for what individuals in these different countries do to maintain or sustain their health, sustain their happiness, uh, to, to live long and fruitful lives. And he travels to, let's see if I remember all six countries, but I know uh, Japan, Bolivia, India, Turkey, I believe Italy, and there's one other, I think there's one country I'm, I'm missing. But anyhow, um, it, it's a really, uh, a very stimulating, thought-provoking series. And I think that his main, one of his main sort of threads in visiting all six of these countries is that Beyond your, beyond your diet, beyond what you do to sort of sustain yourself physically, that forging meaningful relationships um, is um, that's sort of the common theme. In, in all six countries he visits, when he talks to people, he says having meaningful 
lifelong relationships, whether it's with family, with close friends, but he said that that sense of community, that sense of belonging, and the sense of real, real deep connection um, is ultimately, um, it's what sustains us regardless. And that, and that's and it sustains us across geography and across that's culture. Right. We is you social critters, so that's how it works with us. We got to have that, yeah. and that's what's been most challenging during the damn pandemic. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Great, great recommendations. My uh, recommendation is a book, The Committed, which is the sequel to The Sympathizer, which won the Pulitzer uh, for the author who just I, I adore, Viet Han Min, uh, in 2016. This, so far, I'm about halfway through it, and it's possibly better. I got to say, yeah, it's, it's maybe better. I want to especially recommend the audiobook version of it, which is read by the actor Francois Chal, uh, who is just an absolutely... I mean, he just delivers the most bravura performance. It's it's just one of the best audiobook narrations I've ever 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 heard. It it it, it doesn't flag for a single sentence. I mean, and it's just he he conveys like the whole range of emotions um, and and registers of our nameless protagonist. I mean, whether it's it's the earnest and sentimental or the the very arch and ironic uh, thing, which he, he does just great. Um, Francois Shaw, for those of you who, who like the, the space opera, The Expanse, which I, I really love, he's the actor who plays Jules Pierre Mao. Um, he's a great actor, just one of the great Asian American actors. So uh, check it out. The Committed, fantastic book. Uh, and, and first, you know, read The Sympathizer. You really do need to read that first. Ali, man, thank you once again. That was fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. All right. Looking forward to having you back on the show again. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to being back. All right. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaja Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.